in the book of Acts, we have the birth of the church that's continuing on now some 2,000 years later. And so as we start to look at the birth of the church, we're going to run into a lot of firsts. We've seen the first crisis that the church has had. And now we see the first time that they call out to God in the midst of crisis. It's certainly not the first time we've seen them pray. They prayed when they were choosing someone to replace Judas. They prayed that a man would be risen from, that, that a lame man would receive his strength uh, in, in Acts chapter 2. Here they pray out of crisis. There's a crisis that they are in. It, it shouldn't surprise them. Jesus told them that they were going to have crisis, but they pray. Now, there's going to be a lot that's going to be said about prayer after this. Remember that this prayer is prayed before the church ever receives instruction from the epistles on how to pray. You can break the Bible, the New Testament up into four sections. You have the history of Jesus in the Gospels, the history of the church in the book of Acts. You have instructions on how the church is to live in the epistles. And then you have a the book of Revelation, which tells us about what God's doing in the future, kind of clues us in, and we can look around the world to see where we are. Well, here we have them needing prayer, but they don't have the passages you and I have to help encourage them to pray. They are being led by the Spirit. Let me give you a few examples of what the Bible says about the kind of prayers that we're supposed to pray. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I can tell you personally, that passage has helped me a lot. When I'm anxious, I realize you are rarely ever anxious. When I'm anxious, which is a lot, I find myself praying because the Bible says, be anxious about nothing, but everything with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. In Romans 8, 26, we're told this. This is kind of, it sounds strange, but listen to what it says. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know the things that we should pray as we ought. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You just don't know how to pray for it. I want to pray for this, but what do I pray? And so it says, but the Spirit himself makes intercessions with groanings which cannot be uttered. That simply means as you cry out to God, as you groan in your prayers, as you, when you are at a loss with words, that the Holy Spirit is, I've got you. I've got this covered. I know what you're talking about. I know how you're feeling. I know how you're praying. In Matthew 6, 6, in response to the Pharisees standing on the street corner and praying, Jesus said, thus to themselves. In other words, when you're praying just to be seen by people, you aren't even really praying. You're just talking to yourself. And so in response to that, he says this, but you, when you pray, Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who sees in secret, a secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, there's a lot more information given to us about prayer in the epistles. You don't receive because you don't ask. There's just a lot of different information. But we also see that the crisis that they have here has been foretold to them. I'm going to send you out into this world, Jesus said, 
like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents or be as wise as serpent, serpents and as gentle as doves. Now we could take a whole sermon and work on that one, right? Did Jesus really tell us to be like serpents, to be as wise or as shrewd as serpents and to be gentle as doves? We have to be well thought out as we are interacting in the midst of the world. But listen to what Jesus told them was going to happen to them. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In Luke 6, 22, blessed are you when they hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they cast you out um, for you, uh, cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. It doesn't say blessed are you when things happen to you because you're weird, but blessed are you when things happen to you for Christ's sake. So we should expect, they should expect to be treated differently because they're Christians and that the world is not going to like us or understand us as we represent Jesus Christ. All of these warnings have been given to them. So we pick them up in, in Acts 4, 23. They've been released. They have been detained overnight. And it was absurd. They had healed a man who was lame for 40 years. And so they arrested them. Peter recognized that people thought he was the one doing the miracle. And so Peter says, no, it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands before you whole. Well, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. This creates a conundrum to them. They've got a resurrected Jesus healing people now and they arrest Peter James. The next day they interrogate them. They don't get the information they want. And so they threaten them. And when they threaten them, Peter says, will you decide, is it right for us to obey God or to obey man? And then they get back together again and they threaten them again because it worked so well the first time. They threaten them again that they would no longer preach in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Now, these threats are to be taken serious. The Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees are part of what condemned Jesus and handed Jesus over to Pilate. The, the idea that they could be killed is very real, so real that by the time we get not much farther from here, Stephen will be killed and James one of the apostles will be killed. We'll have the first deaths. So when these guys return, they are taking it serious, partially because Jesus said, they're gonna take you, they're gonna arrest you, and they're gonna kill you. So in verse 23 of Acts 4, after they were released, it says, and being let go, they went to their companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them, so when they heard that, they raised their voices to God. Now their companions, we don't know who exactly there are. We know that the church at this point has 10,000 men. It's growing incredibly fast. It could have somewhere between 15 and 20,000 if you count men and women in it. It's very quickly. 
but they get back together with their companions and they talk about what happened. They reported what the chief priest and elder said and immediately, spontaneously, they break out in prayer. And that's, I like that, that the first thing they wanna do is pray. They aren't like, well, we got a lot of people now. We got about 10,000 people. Let's have a rally. Let's pass a petition. Let's, uh, let's go and get people on our side that they're really mistreating us. No, they know the real power is with God and God's the one sending them out and God's the one who can help them. And so it says they raise their voices to God. And the word for God here is simply the, the generic uh, Hebrew, uh, excuse me, Greek word for God, theos. And it says in one accord. Now the one accord means that there was unity among them. They had unity in calling out to God for help. And you could have unity without having complete, without agreeing on everything, where you unify on a certain thing to call out before God. And so they're unified and they call out to him. And it says, here's what they say. They're calling out to God, Theos, and they say, Lord, now that's translated Lord. And if you have the NIV in front of you, the ESV in front of you, it's going to say sovereign Lord or sovereign God. This is, this is the word despatos in the Greek. It means sovereign. So the first thing they say is you're in control. You're sovereign. We, we get the word sovereign from royalty. A king does what a king wants to do. They are sovereigns. And so some have misused this idea of God's sovereignty, saying that God always does what God wants to do. Now, the Bible never says that. The Bible never says God is sovereign, so God does everything he wants to do. I mean, ultimately, God does do what he wants to do. But their idea is that God doesn't leave men free choice. In, in, in certain worlds, sovereignty excludes free will. You don't have any free will. You are determined to do what you do because God is sovereign. However, that's not what sovereignty means. God is so sovereign that he could choose men to, to, he could choose to give men free will so you can choose to love God so you're not some kind of robot that has to love God or worse yet, some kind of a person who can't love God. It's not within your ability to be able to love God. And how would God discipline that person if his sovereignty meant that some people can't come? You can't come, but I'm gonna discipline you anyway. I'm gonna condemn you uh, even though you couldn't come. That would not be a fairness with God. Now, there are theologians who believe that God is sovereign. God chooses people to not be able to choose him and he condemns them and they call it fair. Compatibilism is, is what it's called in theology, but it doesn't make any sense. In, in our world, we would, we would think that a judge is unfair. If someone condemns something for something in something that they could not choose. 
So when they say sovereign, they're realizing you're the one who's in control. You're the one we need to talk to. God is sovereign. Now listen, God is still sovereign today. God is the one who can do anything. He's the one we can call on to receive anything we need. So they say, Lord, this is the absolute ruler. You are God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They are quoting the Old Testament. God, you created it all, created the heavens, the stars, the galaxies. We've got a new telescope out there, right? Now, the, the Webb telescope, the Hubble telescope had been out there for a long time, giving us information. And so they thought when we send out the Webb telescope, we're going to see you, um, galaxies forming 13.5 billion light years away. Although the date keeps being pushed back. Uh, astrophysicists now say 13.8 billion light years, not 13.5. When you're talking about billions of years, between five and eight is a lot, okay? 13.5 and 13.8. Nevertheless, when they have now are getting images of the edges of the universe back to the Webb telescope, they're finally getting fully formed universes. Excuse me, fully formed galaxies. I don't know about universes, but fully formed, fully formed galaxies. Which tells them on the edge of the universe, something is, something's up. They're going to have to push back further how old the universe is, or they're going to have to figure out another way in which galaxies are formed because they're finding them fully formed. So God created that. And the Bible says that God measures the universe in a span of his hands. God's the creator of the universe. It makes sense he's more powerful than the universe. You made the heavens, you made the earth, you made the sea, and you made all that's in them. All they're doing is putting God in perspective. This is good to do in our prayers. Lord, there's a problem, but you're bigger than the problem. Sometimes our problem looks bigger than God. Why? Because we're closer to our problem. Sometimes here's our problem. We couldn't see anything. God could be right on the other side of it and we couldn't see him because it's so right in front of us. The sun itself is 364,000 miles in diameter. And you can block it with your hand because of how, how far away the sun is from you. Perspective. So you've got something going on in your life and you need God to take care of it. And you go, God's not big enough. God can't handle this problem. The Bible declares there's nothing that is too big for God. Gabriel said to Mary, now nothing will be impossible to God. And so they, the first thing they do in their prayer is they put it in perspective. It's a good thing for us to do. To say, Lord, I surrender to you. I'm yours. I will do what you want me to do. I, you, you have your sovereignty. You can do with me as you see fit. But I know you can handle any of these things. The second thing that they do, and they quoted scripture there, by the way. But the second thing that they do is they quote some more scripture. And this is a passage out of Acts chapter 2, where you have leaders that are fighting against Christ. Now, this is a passage that talks about the end of the age, 
But throughout the ages, men are in opposition to Christ. Listen to what it says. This is verse 25. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage? The people plot, gate thing, uh, plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. Now, if you want to know more of what that says, read Psalms 2. The very last line of Psalms 2 is, all who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. And right before that, it says, kiss the Lord, kiss the, the, the son unless he's angry with you. It's an amazing two powers passages, the power of God and the power of the son of God in Psalms chapter two, the Old Testament, where the world attacks the son. And so we have the kingdom of God today and we have the kingdom of the world and they are opposed to one another. And so all they're doing is recognizing you created all these things and we're now in the middle of this conflict where the sun is against the world and the, the nations are raging and here we are in the middle of it. So then verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and all the people of Israel who gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So they say, it's truly against your servant, your holy servant, Jesus. They, they remember Jesus's words. The world hates me and they wouldn't hate you if it wasn't for me. They're in the midst of this battle against Christ and that's why they have been threatened and Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and all of Israel did these things that were determined beforehand to be done. What, what are they making a reference to? Prophecy, the Old Testament saying these things would be done before they were actually done. They didn't happen without being foretold, but they were all foretold that they were going to be done. And now it is through Jesus Christ. Now they get to their petition. They've laid a lot of groundwork for their petition. Lord, you created the heavens and the earth. There, there's people fighting against Christ. They killed him, determined by what the scripture said. And now look on their threats. Now, again, I think about how I would respond. If somebody arrested me and said, preach in the name of Jesus anymore and, 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 and we're going to arrest you, we're going to beat you. There's going to be consequences. I would pray, Lord, look on their threats and please don't let me get arrested or beat up or hurt. Lord, protect us and give us boldness. I probably would throw give us boldness in there, I hope. But that's not what they do. They don't pray for protection at all. Does that amaze anyone? Jesus already told them. They're going to arrest you. They're going to kill you. They're going to throw you into prison for my name's sake. So they don't pray for protection. Verse 29, now Lord, look on their threats and grant your servant that with all boldness we may speak your word. That's all they want. Lord, help us not to shrink back. 
in the midst of these difficulties and hardships, let us present your word because it is the gospel that saves people. Now, let's think about these guys. Peter is going to make his way to Rome. Peter's one of the ones that was arrested. Peter's the guy that took the guy by the hand and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Peter's going to be taken to Rome under the persecution of Nero. He will be arrested. He will be tried and convicted of being a Christian. Now, how could you be convicted of being a Christian? Because there were sanctioned religions in Rome and non-sanctioned religions. And if you were part of a sanctioned religion, you were fine. Judaism was a sanctioned religion in Rome. So they were not going to arrest you for practicing Judaism. Christianity was a non-sanctioned religion in Rome. So you could be convicted of being a Christian. And if you didn't renounce being a Christian and give your commitment to Caesar, they were polytheistic. They didn't care how many gods you served. They just wanted to make sure you were serving one of the sanctioned gods and that you were serving the Roman emperor. Now, this didn't matter for the first few decades of the church. Persecution came from the Jewish leadership that attacked Jesus. But once Christianity spread throughout the Roman, throughout Rome, all of a sudden there were problems that arose. And so Peter is convicted of being a Christian, will not give allegiance to the emperor. And so Nero has him crucified and Peter begs to be crucified upside down because Peter says, I'm not worthy to be killed like my Lord. And so they crucify Peter upside down and they kill him. Peter, he already knows this is going to happen. Now, John's a unique case. This is Peter and John who have gone to the temple to pray. John's a unique case because John, as far as we know, is the, one of the only disciples that didn't die from, uh, from being martyred. But they tried. We're told that under Diomission that he commanded that he would give allegiance to Caesar. He refused and was boiled in oil and survived. And so they exiled him to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. So these guys don't ever pray to not suffer for the name of Christ because they've been told they're going to suffer. But they pray for boldness and God answers that prayer of boldness. Now, what would have happened had they prayed, Lord, don't let us get hurt. Don't let us get arrested. Don't let us die for that sake. Now they're praying for something that God doesn't want for them. God wants them to be martyred. Now you might say, well, I don't ever want to be martyred. Well, neither do I. None of us do. But it is a great privilege to give your life for Christ. And they had done that. And in the early church, especially when you study early church history, you study about Polycarp and Athanasius and a few other early Christians. There was a gal by the name, and I can't remember, it starts with a P. I can't remember her name. But they gladly were martyred. They rejoiced in the, the ability to be able to die for Christ and would not deny him. They could have, any one of those three could have denied Christ. In fact, to Polycarp, who was killed in Smyrna, uh, the, um, I, I, don't want to, I don't think it was the emperor who was, who was judging him, but he said, 
Polycarp, the fire's going to be hot. And Polycarp said, the fire's going to be hotter where you're going. <laughs> Athanasius, the Christians in Rome, Athanasius died in Rome as well. He was thrown to the wild beasts. Athanasius, it, the Christians decided they were going to kidnap him. They were going to save him, rescue him. And so he pleaded with them, don't, don't rescue me. Let me go to the animals. And he was indeed thrown to the animals and he was killed by the animals. So it's interesting that they don't pray that they wouldn't be hurt, but they pray for boldness. It goes on to say, by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Lord, give us boldness. We'll keep praying in the name of Jesus and God will keep doing things. And God does things today in the name of Jesus. He still does. He did it in their day. He still does it in our day. Now in verse 31, it says, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Now this is unique. When they first received the Holy Spirit, back in Acts chapter 2, there was a rushing wind and tongues of fire was over everybody's head. There's about 120 of them. And I'm not even sure what tongues of fire would look like. And I might leave if it happened to you guys right now. Tongues of fire all of a sudden over everybody's head. But here, the room they're in is shaken. They've prayed something that is so powerful that God shakes the room that they're in and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now they were already filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter two. Now they're filled with the Holy Spirit again in chapter four. And so there are people who say, do you believe in the, the one-time filling or, multiple, or, or, two, or a second experience of the Holy Spirit? My answer is, I believe the Holy Spirit will fill you as many times as he needs to. I don't believe in just a second, but I believe in a third, a fourth, a fifth. As we go out to do the work that God calls us to do. Listen, when we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us and we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Then we are empowered by God to do the work God calls us to do. And if you say, well, I don't have any power of God in my life. Well, are you doing things for him? Have you stepped out to say, God, I want to begin to do this for you? Are you you're looking for God to empower you? And that may happen two, three, four, 10, 20, how many ever times it needs to happen that the Holy Spirit comes upon you to empower you. It doesn't change the fact that the Holy Spirit is already inside of you because you've been born again, that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those things have already happened. This is a special empowering of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't like, the Holy Spirit had leaked out of them between chapters two and chapters four. And God's like, I better get the Holy Spirit back in them again. But once again, he fills them with the Holy Spirit. Look at the term used, filled. Jesus used the word upon. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Bible also uses the word received. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, but the Bible uses the word baptism. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. So people say, do you believe in the filling, the baptism, the upon experience, receiving the Holy Spirit? It, yes. Yeah, it's all the same thing. 
The Bible's just using different terms to speak of the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do the work God's called you to do. God saves you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you and you become a new person. And then he empowers you to do the work that God's called you to do. We're going to see this again and again and again throughout the book of Acts. And then it says, the room they were in was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. What did they do? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. The very thing they had asked to do. Give us boldness to speak in your name. And so now they went out and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's going to cause some problems when we get into chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts. Before we do that, though, we have the first struggle inside of the church. We have the first thing that happens inside of the church. And we know that a lot of the epistles will deal with problems in the church, especially the letters to the church of Corinth. Corinth was a mess. The church itself and the letters that are written to it are written to, to help straighten out what happens inside of it. Now, before we get to chapter 5, he wants to give us some information about what the early church looked like. This is the extreme early church. It doesn't stay this way for very long, but I want to read that. We're going to come back and we'll look for some application in, in praying boldly. But I want to give you just a few verses here, and I'll do this quickly. At the end of this chapter, this is a setup for next week's study, okay? But I don't want to start in chapter four. I want to start in chapter five. Here's what it says. Now, the multitude of those who believed were in one heart and one soul, or were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but he had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon all of them. That's undeserved favor. They were living together, or, or they were living, not necessarily in the same place, and they had all things in common, which meant if one person needed something, they were providing for other people. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them that lacked. Now, some have called this communism, that the early church was, was communism, and we'll talk next week about why it wasn't. But it says, for all who were possessions of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds and the things that were sold and laid them at the feet of the apostles or at the apostles' feet. And they distributed them to each one as anyone had need. Now, this changed, but they didn't stop distributing to needs. Later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that they get seven men who are, are called deacons and they take funds from the church and they distribute them among those who have need within the church. That's still how churches operate. There's a, a group of deacons. They're not always called deacons. Sometimes church calls, churches call them something else. But they oversee the physical needs of people in the body. And if you find yourself in a need, then come to the church. We'll connect you up with our deacons and they'll be able to take care of you. That's not what was happening here. They were bringing things to the disciples, the apostles, and the apostles were distributing it to everyone. Okay, so the apostles are doing everything at this point. They're not supposed to. They're apostles. They're sent out ones. They're supposed to go to Rome and to India and to Alexandria. 
But right now, they're doing the work of taking care of those who are in need. This will always be the work of the church. We are always to care for those who are in need, whether in the church or outside of the church. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, it says in the book of James, is to take care of widows and orphans. So even though this will change, this concept will stay with the church. And we'll see that when we get there. So they laid it at the feet of the apostles and they distributed to each one as had a need. And uh, then Joseph, or Joseph, your Bible might say, you could call him Joe if you want to, but that's not how we remember Joe. Then Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. So the apostles gave a special name to, to, to Joe, Barnabas. And the name is son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. We're going to meet him a lot more. He's going to become a traveling companion of Paul. But he's given a special name by the apostles because in the early church, when he saw people, he encouraged them. There are some people who should be given the name discourager <laughs> because every time you meet them, they're like, what's this about? And what are you doing that for? And you're like, I don't know. I should just go and whatever. You know, but, but Barnabas is an encourager. So as he talks with people, people are like, yes, I want to do what God's called me to do. So it says that Barnabas, he was named by the apostles, uh, which is translated the son of encouragement and a Levite from the country of Cyprus. Notice that he knew what tribe he was from. Paul knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Anna in the temple when Jesus was a baby knew that she was from, I think it was the tribe of Asher. What I'm pointing out here is there is no lost tribes of Israel. The, the Assyrians took captive the nation of Israel. The Babylonians took captive the nation of Judah. This is when there was a civil war. There are two nations, nation of Israel and nation of Judah. But the Bible says remnants returned back to the land and the people that are in the land during the days of Jesus are made up largely of those from Judah, but also remnants from every other tribe that is out there. The only reason I bring this up now is I'm cutting off at the pass for further studies of false doctrines that are being taught out there that other people are from the tribe of Israel. For example, some will say that the Danish people are from the tribe of Dan. They're not. <laughs> They're not, okay? So that's just an example of the kind of weird things that people will say. And there's some really bizarre stuff that are out there. So just note, he knew where he was from. Now he had some land to sell, and that seems to be a problem too. We'll talk about that later, because Levites weren't supposed to have any land. Where did the son of encouragement get this land from? Well, it says he's from Cyprus. So maybe it wasn't land in Israel. Maybe it was land in Cyprus. But anyway... He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's the problem that happened. Everybody would watch that happen. So Barnabas came in and was like, I had land in, Cy in Cyprus or I had land and I sold it. And here's the money to be used for everybody else. And everybody else went, wow, Barnabas, what a guy, what a great guy. 
and jealousy arose in some other people's hearts. And that's the first problem that enters the church is jealousy that we're going to look at next week. But three things in closing on the passage that I wanted to cover. I just didn't want to go back into chapter four and read this next week. We're going to talk about it and, and I might read it again. Who knows? But in uh, three things in closing, number one, they found fellowship with the saints in the midst of struggle. That's why we have koinonia. That's why we get to know each other. That's why we have companions in the church. And some of you guys are really good at that. You're really good at making friendships within the church. So when you have a struggle, you have companions you can go to and call on the name of the Lord. Number two, prayer helps put things in perspective. And when we pray, we should put it in perspective because God can handle anything that comes our way and will do it. He will not answer every prayer. There's no promise in the Bible. He will answer every prayer because God sometimes has certain things that are planned. God had said, they're gonna arrest you. They're gonna kill you. You are gonna suffer persecution for my sake. For them to pray that would have been praying against something God already told them in the word. Instead, they prayed for boldness and God answered that prayer. They, and number three, they asked for something that God wanted and they received it. The Bible says, if you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Sometimes we're delighting in the world, which is why we don't ever get our prayers answered, but delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus said, abide in me and let my word abide in you and you will ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you because our desires will become more godlike. And the more we learn his word, the more we learn the things that we can pray for and that we can receive. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can see the disciples here in their first crisis as they call out to you in prayer. You meet them, you interact with them, you, you fill them with the spirit, you give them boldness and they go out to do the work that you called them to do. Lord, we have all kinds of needs that are here, but we do have a need as well to be bold to be bold in the midst of a world that is increasingly antichrist, increasingly hating you. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would give us boldness, open doors for us to be able to share and allow us to have boldness for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.